This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And joining us in studio is John Shaw. He is the director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute on the campus of Southern Illinois University and out with a new citizen's guide called Restoring American Statesmanship. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Let me begin with a very basic question. What is statesmanship? Well, it's interesting because it has been debated since the days of Aristotle and Plato. And as we, as I began this project on statesmanship, started to read some of the classic literature on leadership, and you can get totally bogged down in the definitions. So what we tried to do is develop a very practical definition of statesmanship, which we think of as high-level leadership characterized by a couple basic qualities. Um, and let me just go through them real quickly, and maybe you can dig into them. The first is vision, the sense of looking to the long term. A second one would be courage, making hard decisions and also doing hard things when no one is even noticing. Um, a third piece is just compassion, the ability to to empathize with others and to do things in a way that helps helps other people. Um, effectiveness is important, and it's a key uh, aspect of statesmanship. As we say in this book, uh, Don Quixote is a great figure in world literature, but should not be considered as a role model for statesmen. I mean, noble failure is not what statesmanship is about. And the final piece, I would say civility, um, which is niceness, but it's more than just niceness. It's a quality of, of generosity and empathy and, and, and listening to others and kind of finding where people are, meeting them there, and, and building consensus and, and solving problems. And with regard to vision, you quote George Washington and his, quote, century hence, looking ahead something that it seems we're lacking today. Exactly. And then, I mean, it's so striking now in the, in the pressures of time, how, how, you know, winning a news cycle has become sort of the, the measure of leadership as opposed to doing things for the really long term and thinking, as you said, I mean, Washington's correspondence is littered with the phrase, a century hence, actually thinking about how policies he was undertaking back then would affect Americans a hundred years in the future. Again, something very, very different from the, the, I think, the current mentality in, in American politics. There is a lot in this guide, but I want to begin essentially where you begin. Quote, The American political system is under considerable stress, battered and bruised by relentless conflict and meager accomplishments. Increasing partisanship, intense polarization, faltering institutions, furious citizens, uncertain leaders, and unsolved problems are a disturbing and pervasive reality in the United States. Wow. Wow, yeah. And I, when we started it, we did not want to uh, – we wanted to to, 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 to state what which we think is the truth, you know, to explain the current situation without being hyperbolic. And those are hard words, but you are not going to find a lot of people – in Washington or even back in southern Illinois who look at what's happening now in the political system, certainly nationally and even at the state level, and say, this is what we expect from our government. Um, and, and it seems that on every level, whether it's the leadership, whether it's institutions, and candidly, a very big part of this problem, I think, are citizens. We have a disengaged, detached, and also angry citizenry that is maybe sometimes placing unreasonable demands on politicians, 
but is also not staying active and engaged on the long term and really rewarding courageous leadership. So we have problems on a lot of fronts. And our view was the way to start is to just to return um, the discussion to statesmanship, to a, an elevated type of leadership, and just focus on that and make that kind of leadership the ideal that young uh, people, as they enter government and think about careers, that should be the ideal they think about as they ponder their uh, initial steps in their career. And you write about the culture of distrust. Let me put a few examples on the table. Did it begin with these moments or does it date back even further? The assassination of John F. Kennedy, Vietnam, Watergate, Iran-Contra, the impeachment of two presidents, Bill Clinton and more recently Donald Trump. Is that the culture of distrust or is it something more and deeper? I think that's certainly the the most contemporary manifestation of it. I mean, certainly I think a lot of people date this current mood really to the the, maybe even the assassination of Kennedy in which, um, you know, almost a mythical figure could be just eliminated in a moment. And then, of course, you know, a half a century of, of... of debate about what actually happened. As someone who uh, who wrote a book called JFK in the Senate that, that dealt with Kennedy's Senate career, it's interesting. Every time I give a talk, the first five questions are about the assassination. And I think it is, I mean, it ties to maybe something deeper, this culture that, uh, or this belief that the culture and the political system is not totally on the level, that it's not answering questions uh, truthfully and honestly. And I think that's sown a lot of the discontent that we have in the country. We're talking with John Shaw. He is on the campus of Southern Illinois University. And I can't believe I have to ask you this question, but for those in our audience who don't know, who was Paul Simon? Paul Simon. And not the singer. That's not. And I, in fact, when I introduce myself, and I, the first thing I say, I say he had the bow tie, not the singer. But Paul Simon was an iconic political figure in Illinois, uh, served for almost 40 years in the state um, the state House of Representatives, state Senate. He was lieutenant governor. He was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for a decade and then was a two-term senator, retiring in 1996. And when he retired, he moved back to southern Illinois and created the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute to continue his interest in public policy. And one of his quotes, the, the politicians that pander to our whims rather than telling us the truth, beware of them. And, and Simon, the one of I think his really distinguishing qualities was a, an almost inability to be to dissemble and to be dishonest. Um, one of my favorite stories that just has come up recently, I was going through some of his correspondence, and a constituent sent him a very angry letter on I think it was the issue of guns and just challenges his views and just ripped into him. And Simon wrote back and he said, "Dear so and so, you know, thank you for your letter. You know, on the position of guns, you stated my position is this. That's accurate. This is what I believe." Um, and he says, your position seems to be different. So if this is an important issue to you, you should vote for someone else. And it's interesting because when you deconstruct that, he didn't challenge their patriotism or challenge their intelligence, um, nor did he pretend that there was false agreement, that we're not that far apart. He was willing to say, look, this is what I believe in, and this is what my career is about, and if you agree with me, vote for me. If you don't, vote for someone else. No no hard feelings. Um, and I think, you know, to be fair, he was an iconic, established figure and probably had a, a sort of a freedom. But I think that was just sort of his mentality, that that uh, public officials owed it to their constituents and to themselves to be straight shooters 
and um, and hopefully they'll vote for you. If not, you can find something productive to do if you lose. In this Citizen's Guide, you also write about uninspiring leaders today, disgruntled and disengaged citizens, and faltering institutions. So let's take them one at a time. First, uninspiring leaders. I think there's broad agreement that our current group of, of political leaders is not conducting itself on on a level that is, you know, that I think has been typical in American history. I mean, I think if you look at just the quality of, of leaders on all levels of government, um, I don't think it's quite at the at the, the level that it had been in the past. And I mean, you can, you have to be careful because there's a sense of like uh, golden ages and it's not as if there's a uh, you know, a magical time in American history. But I was actually just doing a, I, I gave a talk on this topic a couple of weeks ago. And I went back, I started reporting, um, covering Congress in 1991. And I looked back at the list of this, the senators in 1991. And I don't have the list in front of me, but it included people like George Mitchell, Bill Bradley, um, uh, Daniel Moynihan, Lloyd Benson, Paul Simon, um, uh, Ted Kennedy, Ted Bob Kennedy, Dole. Bob Dole. Uh, Richard Luger, John Chafee, John Danforth. I mean, it was just just even reading the list of people who served in the Senate in 1991. I'm like, something really fundamental has changed. And even, you know, historians would not even point to that as a golden age of the Senate. They would go back maybe a generation earlier and talk about the Senate of, you know, the the late 50s and 1960s, you know, the the, the Congress that passed some of the civil rights and, and, you know, Medicare and Medicaid legislation. So, so it's striking when you just think about you know the leadership crisis now and it's and the one thing that is striking to me is I, I don't think it's that people no longer aspire to be great leaders one of the things I try to we try to do in this guide is look at what are the barriers to statesmanship what prevents people from being statesmen and I think I think there are some really fundamental ones and it uh, and the first one is just a political system that has become very polarized we all know that. Um, the two parties are very evenly balanced, and so there's just no incentive to cross the aisle and try to develop constructive relationships because you're in a pitch battle for power all the time. Um, I think money in politics is huge. If you're spending three or four hours a day fundraising, as a lot of members of Congress are, it's very, very hard to cast the tough vote that puts your political career in jeopardy. I mean, you have to think long and hard. You think back of all those hours and hours you spent every day raising raising funds. I think the media plays a big role, particularly the partisan media that has broken out. I think social media is huge. And let me give you one small example, but I think it's it's kind of it's telling. Uh, Peter King, the uh, the congressman from New York, uh, announced his uh, retirement, coming retirement. And um, and, you know, within a day or two, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, issued the most perfunctory of congratulations on a good career. Good to work with you in New York. Um, You know, best of luck in retirement. And he was excoriated on social media by his base for being too accommodating, for being an enabler, for being too weak. And it's I think that's when, when, when just even the most elemental extension of civility um, triggers a fierce reaction from your partisans. 
it makes it very, very hard to do to do uh, risky things. I mean, one example I, I think of too is uh, Senator Robert Bennett of Utah, very, very conservative Republican senator. I think on most uh, you know voting scales, he's you know ninety nine percent on a lot of the the measures. He had uh, developed a constructive relationship with Ron Wyden, a Democrat from from Oregon. They met regularly. They they worked on some some modest reforms. It was on that basis alone that Bennett was defeated in a Republican caucus by Mike Lee, uh, hammering him for being too much of an accommodating. Uh, you know, not not pure enough. So, I think all these things suggest that the, the political environment now is such that when when people try to reach across the aisle, when they try to find solutions, when they try to do hard things, uh, the reaction is oftentimes pretty fierce, and so that makes them reluctant to to take many chances. We are talking with John Shaw. He is the director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, located at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And a couple of years before he passed away, we sat down with former President Gerald Ford. He talked about his 25 years in the House of Representatives. And I realize you can't go back because it was a very different time. But he made two points. He said, first of all, I had relationships that were forged in World War II. And so, yes, I differed and disagreed with my Democratic colleagues, but we had a common bond in that war that we carried through in our time in the House and those in the U.S. Senate. He also made the point that my family lived here. He lived in Alexandria, Virginia. So on weekends, he would be out with his colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, softball games, baseball games, with children of House and Senate members. And so they forged a more personal relationship as well things that we don't have today. And it's interesting, Ray LaHood, the former transportation secretary and uh, Illinois congressman, came to the Institute a few months ago and was talking about the political climate. And he, he, he focused very heavily on the fact that lawmakers do not move to Washington and just said that creates a very different culture. And, and he made the point, he said, when you, if you, you know, if you know someone's spouse, their kids, you know, you, it makes you very, very difficult to challenge their motives. You can disagree with their policy, but there's just an element of humanity and civility that that ex, that exists when those kind of relationships are in place that he argued is no longer in place because people fly in on Tuesday, leave on Thursday night, you know, know people in passing at best, sometimes even from their own party, let alone the other party. So I think I think a lot of that 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 sort of basic layer of civility has been peeled away and it's made uh, the leadership crisis, I think, more acute. And it does not appear to be changing anytime soon. No, I mean, there's no real prospect that I can tell of. I mean, every now and then there's a, a reform proposal that's floated that s- talks about rearranging the congressional schedule and making it five days away a week, um, you know, maybe meeting three weeks, then a week off. But that never really gets anywhere. And I think right now, given the pressures on fundraising, um, that, that it's, it's just not going to change. What we have is going to be in place for a while, I think. So in this Citizen's Guide, Restoring American Statesmanship, you – profile a couple of well-known individuals. I've selected a few. One obvious one, Abraham Lincoln. For Illinois, where we're based, uh, Lincoln is is uh, is maybe the obvious choice. But the thing that's striking about Lincoln, I mean, he's an obviously an iconic figure, and you know, there's a, a mythical figure. But the thing that I, I find most striking about Lincoln is, in the midst of the Civil War, you know, the most difficult and bloody conflict in American history, Lincoln was doing things like supporting 
uh, legislation to make land-grant colleges uh, develop. He was supporting legislation to make the railroads run across the country, Uh, the homestead legislation to to settle the West. So just the notion of in the midst of the, uh, the most intense immediate crisis you can imagine, he was pursuing and supporting policies that had a a reach well into the future. And that's the, the essential to me, the greatness of Lincoln, is that he could be doing amazingly hard things right now, but is also supporting measures that would bear fruit, you know, decades from from when he would pass the scene. So that's that's one of the qualities I think is so striking in Lincoln. Also in your book, George C. Marshall. Marshall is uh, one of these, you know, iconic figures, too. I mean, you know, severe, tough-minded, hard-edged, hard-driving, but also amazingly fair, treated everyone the same. I mean, he's one of these few human beings who's ever served in government who is probably as, as formidable to his superiors as he was to his subordinates. He was... Um, just an amazingly hard-driving straight shooter and did, you know, some of the most uh, important things in American history. It helped organize the war effort that, that defeated Hitler. I mean, he probably played a greater role in the strategy that that had the, the Western alliance win than any other single person. Um, and then when when the war ended, he became Secretary of State and helped develop things like the Marshall Plan and the Truman Doctrine that uh, and and supported the effort to create the United Nations. So again, policies that would have reaches reach for decades after he he left the scene. And then one of the more colorful characters, and she was a character in the U.S. Senate, Margaret Chase Smith. Margaret Chase Smith. Yes, she was a fiercely independent senator. Um, from Maine, you know, uh, unpretentious, straight shooting. Um, but I think the, the moment she really rose to the occasion was when she was still a freshman senator in 1950 and uh, heard Joseph McCarthy go on one of his tirades one time too many and effectively went to the floor, I think it was on June 1st, 1950, and said, never named him personally, but said, you know, we need to have a different politics here. We need to end the politics of personal destruction. And she said, the Republican Party, my party, uh, I hope wins the next election. I think it needs to win the next election. But we need to win it on the right terms. We don't need to do it by name calling and making false accusations. So she uh, she attacked McCarthy in a way no one else in her party would. And, and there were reprisals. She was shunned by the party leadership. She was she was uh, set aside for some committee assignments that seemed to be you know waiting for her. Um, in 1954, the uh, McCarthy supported a, uh, a rival of hers for the Democrat for the Republican nomination in Senate, and she she won that uh, won, won that primary and then won re-election. So, one of these people that was willing to risk her career and do very unpopular things just because she felt that um, that uh, that it was her duty and that her loyalty to the country was of of, of a higher scale than her loyalty to her party. I'm curious on that point, where would you put Senator Mitt Romney and his vote on one of those two articles of impeachment to impeach President Trump, the only Republican to do so? 
Right. And I, yeah, I mean, I think Romney definitely did rise to the occasion. But I have to say, as I as I was watching his speech and, and watching his vote, it occurred to me, I, I referred to the senators who were serving in 1991. I think in 1991, just, you know, within our you know political lifetimes, there probably would have been seven or eight or 10 Mitt Romneys uh, stepping forward and saying, come on, we at least need to listen to witnesses. We need to have a legitimate trial. Um, and I think it's the, the disappearance of the of the the Romneys, or, or the, actually the, the fact that there are so few of them, that kind of highlights what our um, our leadership crisis has become. John Charles, let's go back to your list: uh, two individuals, one Democrat, one Republican, who really made their mark during the Watergate investigation from Tennessee, Senator Howard Baker. Howard Baker, and I think Baker, what what strikes me most about Baker was his working with Jimmy Carter on the Panama Canal Treaty. He was a Republican leader. It was 1978. He was gearing up for a reelection campaign in Tennessee, but also was looking at the 1980 Republican presidential nomination. He knew the Panama Canal treaties were very unpopular in the Republican ranks, knew supporting it probably would de- destroy his chance to get the Republican nomination. But first of all, set in place a very fair process to review the treaties, to look at them, and then decided that it was in the national interest. So he cast a vote to uh, to support the treaties, and they helped pass it and led to his, um, you know, I think he, you know, he, 1980, he didn't get the Republican nomination. Although, interestingly, in 19, he retired in 1985 and was, was eyeing a presidential run in 1988 when uh, President Reagan called and asked him to be his chief of staff. And he, he set aside his ambitions to take that job, knowing it was going to be a thankless job and it would probably make him, make his, his plan to run for the presidency in 1988 not happen. So, again, one of these men who was, willing to set aside personal ambitions for, I think, the the, the larger public good. And again, that question that we all studied in high school and college, what did the president know and when did he know it during the Watergate hearings? Right, right. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of literature that's that's come out about Baker during Watergate and just what his what his posture was. Uh, it seems now that there's a sense that he was he was working or uh, he was he was in contact with the, the Nixon White House a fair amount, but the critical point is that at a, at a critical point he was willing to step forward and and, and ask hard questions and, and believe that he was representing a branch of government that needed to examine. Um, a national crisis as opposed to just a party leader who is carrying the water for his uh, for his president. And from Texas, Democrat Representative Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan became an iconic figure uh, during the Watergate hearings um, and was able to, in a starting startlingly electric and powerful way, just refocus the debate on the Constitution and the constitutional requirements that all lawmakers had as they considered the impeachment case. And I, I thought of her a lot during this, the impeachment of, uh, of Donald Trump, that very, there, really on neither side was there someone who, who really kind of framed the, the issues in the kind of constitutional way that, that Barbara Jordan did in 1974. Abraham Lincoln, George Marshall, Margaret Chase Smith, Howard Baker, Barbara Jordan. What was the common quality that each of these individuals had? I think for these people, the, really the common quality, and maybe it sounds trite to say it, I think it was courage. This, this sense that their responsibility to the public good, to the public interest, trumped personal uh, ambition, 
party loyalty, um, just this this overriding sense of, of the national interest. And I, one other person I might throw into this mix because it was someone who I've, I've I came to know quite well. Uh, about ten years ago, I wrote a book on Richard Luger of of Indiana, and I spent about five years working on this book. I was doing my full time job, but I was also interviewing him regularly and traveled with him overseas and spent a week with him in Indiana and watched him in Washington. And the one thing that struck me about Senator Luger, he was an ambitious uh, politician, but the first question he would ask himself when he approached a public policy issue was, what is in the public interest? And then he would say, what is in my private interest? And then what is in my partisan political interest? But but the first question was, what is in the national interest? And it led him to do things like break with Ronald Reagan in the mid-1980s on apartheid legislation. And it allowed him to, decades later, support Barack Obama on an arms control treaty um, with Russia, um, and it led him to spend, you know, a good chunk of his political career working on very arcane, esoteric legislation, the Nunn-Luger Act, to uh, to secure weapons of mass destruction in the former Soviet Union. So, someone like Luger, and this is where I think he's important to focus on someone like him, because when we think about statesmanship, it's it's easy to think, okay, this is just this impossible ideal that no one in the real world can can meet. You know, and Abraham Lincoln is a pretty high standard for anyone who's a functioning politician to aspire to. But I think of someone like Richard Luger, who served, you know, from 1977 to 2013. Um, and again, you know, was was just relentlessly focused on doing, um, you know, big and important things and was also able to, you know, to get reelected to the Senate. Uh, he was elected once and then reelected five times. So he was able to have a pretty functional political career while also doing big and important and, and challenging things. And you, of course, covered many of these individuals as a reporter on Capitol Hill. John Shaw, what is your background? I um, I'm from Illinois. Went to Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. Uh, worked in Illinois state government for a few years. Traveled overseas. Um, I won a Rotary Fellowship and spent a year traveling around Australia, speaking uh, to Rotary clubs in Sydney, Australia, and other parts of Australia. And then I moved to Washington in 1991 and was a, a reporter for Market News International for 26 years, uh, covering mostly economic issues. Um, also did some book writing. I've written five books on various uh, topics. Uh, Senator Luger, as I mentioned, wrote a book called JFK in the Senate about Kennedy's Senate career. And then most recently wrote a, a fun book, at least for me, on the transition between Eisenhower and Kennedy, focusing on the 10-week period between Kennedy's election and his inauguration, and just looking at the transfer of power. And, and even that, there were some lessons on statesmanship. And I think like someone like a Dwight Eisenhower, who I tended to discount as kind of a you know, sort of a stodgy, non-creative guy. As I as I dug into his his history and his background, and particularly the way he conducted this transition, because Eisenhower didn't like Kennedy. You know, they were not fans of each other, but they decided that it was in the, in the public interest to conduct a prof- professional uh, transition. And both of them kind of put aside their pettiness and work together to to make this work for the good of the country. And and Eisenhower at various points, you know, resisted uh, possibilities to take digs at Kennedy and and so forth. He just said it's in the it's in the national interest that this transition occur as smoothly as possible. Let me go back to the two other items uh, of the three that we were talking about in terms of leadership. You also write about disgruntled and disengaged citizens, and faltering institutions. 
My question is, why are we seeing that today? You talked about the media. You talked about money and politics. But what is the root cause of all of this from your standpoint? Well, so I, I think the the problem, I, I mean, I see three pieces. I mean, I think the leadership problem, which we've discussed, I think the, the citizenship issue is huge because I think engaged, active citizens expect a higher quality of leaders than those who are you know, disengaged and not following it. And I think it just follows that even people who are active in their communities and do things that, uh, you know, in service clubs or, or local projects, I think they have a better sense of just what it takes to succeed. I mean, what kind of skills are necessary to govern? You know, who is, you know, who is the, the person who's all talk? Who is the one that delivers? So I think as the citizens are engaged and active, I think they they were they expect more out of their politicians. And one of the points I make to students as I talk to them about you know citizenship and leadership, and and particularly in this intensely polarized time, there's a temptation to say, look, at my party isn't great, but the other guys and gals are worse. And as I say to my students, you should expect your party to adhere to a higher standard than the other party. If you're a Democrat, you're from the party of Kennedy and FDR, so you should be better than the other party. And if you're a Republican, you're from the party of Lincoln, you should be better. And so I think one of the the critical things that has to change is this dynamic in which we you know, we don't like our party very much, but we loathe the other party and all of our energy is is kind of focused on 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 defeating the other party as opposed to forcing our people to take a higher a higher level. So I think I think the citizenship piece is huge. I think the leadership, and I think those two, when those come together and improve, I, I think that at least creates the climate for institutions to work better. And just you know, we we talk about Congress and how dysfunctional it's become. I think a lot of it is because. Members of Congress see themselves not as a member of a, of an independent branch of government that needs to be protected and preserved, but they feel themselves part of this you know partisan war. And let me just tell one quick story that I from my first uh, uh, years covering Congress, I used to love going to the Foreign Affairs Committee hearings. They'd have in usually in February they'd have these State of the World hearings about you know what's going on, and they'd bring in the Secretary of State. So I remember in 19, I think it was 91, Jane, uh, Lee Hamilton, who's also profiled in this book, chaired a hearing with uh, Jim Baker. And Hamilton was courtly and professional, but he was really, really tough on Baker. And it was a, it was watching two heavyweights go at each other. And I remember watching that and thinking, okay, great. And then a year or two later, I saw these same hearings in which Hamilton received testimony from Warren Christopher. Bill Clinton, Secretary of State, the Secretary of State from his party. And he was tougher on Christopher than he was on Jim Baker. And he was pressing him harder for answers. And it was just, to me, a stark example that Hamilton saw his job as being a representative of the congressional branch, an independent branch of government whose responsibility is to ask questions of the executive branch and force them to come up with clear, precise answers. And he was not going to let Christopher off just because he was a fellow Democrat. So I, I think that when, when you have that sort of leadership, I think it makes Congress right work better. And I'll, I'll make another point of Hamilton. I think that he understands far better than the current group of, of leaders is process matters. And when a party... Uh, a majority party tries to cram stuff through, um, they may succeed, but they do not build the, the basis of legislation and law that will be sustained. 
And so I think, you know, Hamilton said it matters how you win an issue and it matters how it's resolved, because if the other party does not feel like it's part of it, it will not work to enforce the law and it will actively try to undermine it. Um, And I think that, you know, if I can be candid at some of the uh, comments Senator McConnell has made in which he said things like, you know, winners make policy, losers go home, is to me almost turning statesmanship on its head. It's saying all that matters is to to secure partisan victories and and you just you move forward without really bringing the other party in to to develop solutions that have an enduring quality to them. So in a single sentence, your message in this book is what? Um, That we should expect more from our leaders and demand more from our leaders. And then as citizens, we should step up to the plate and make more contributions to our society and also to, uh, to do more to reward great leadership. John Shaw, if people want to follow you on social media, how can they do so? Well, I'm a little bit of a Luddite, so just go on the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute website, and my staff does the uh, the Twitter and other sorts of things, Facebook. So, but, but actually, I would encourage people to to uh, to Google the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. The book that we've referred to is is free. We will either send you out hard copies. Or you can download it um, and and read it there. But we hope people read it and think about uh, statesmanship. Restoring American Statesmanship, a Citizen's Guide, and its author, John Shaw. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app on the web at cspan.org. And we kindly ask that you rate and review us. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thank you for listening.